Merkel Media. What does the goddamn line say, Tony? Please do not use gendered language. Then what? I'll be arrested, put in airport jail. Look, you're going completely sideways, man. It's a big club, and you ain't in it. How dare you? Mr. Speaker, the President of the United States. Jack Mary's tax tricks. Hi, I'm Spartacus. Jackson, Sacramento, he, him. Steven Seagal. Sex offender guy. I'm Keith Morris. This is Mumbai, Gudavi. I'm Rick James, bitch, bitch. Sorting through the lies. The hijacker's passport was found blocks from the World Trade Center crash site, if you can believe that. We cannot track $2.3 trillion in transactions. And uncovering the centuries-long plan for world domination. Learning about Cuba, having some food. Let's talk about Chinese people. Have you ever been in a, in a Turkish prison? I have sent six of my Libyan missiles to blow up the CS hardware department. Nothing could be more fun than jumping off a cliff with two German bisexuals. Oh, you English are so Thank you, comrade. And now, macro That's what assholes call it. With your host. Buddy, I don't know who you are, but you're about to get chlamydia. Charlie Robinson. Hey, Whitey, where's your hat? You want to drop the blame on Charlie and say it's all Charlie's fault. He was a retard. I get some goddamn diuretic. Welcome to Macroaggressions. I'm your host, Charlie Robinson. If you are watching us on Rockfin, Odyssey, Band.video, Vigilante.tv, or you're listening wherever podcasts are served, thank you so much. We appreciate your support. If you like this episode, you can take the additional step of sharing it with your friends and family. You can follow me on Twitter at Macroaggression, or you can go to the website, theoctopusofglobalcontrol.com. Thank you to our sponsors. Our newest sponsor is Legal Shield. They have been in business for 50 years. They have an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau, and their services are available in Canada, in the United States. And what is it, you might ask? Well, it is the collective buying power of all of us directed towards high-power law firms in your area. It allows you to get access to lawyers that you might not normally have the financial capacity to afford and get them to work on all sorts of projects for you, whether that be creating legal documents such as powers of attorneys, financial powers of attorneys, last will and testaments, medical directives. Uh, Maybe you have problems with your taxes are being audited, you definitely would want to talk to them. You'll never sign another contract again without sending it to your attorney first. And if you just have questions about your rights, we all, God knows they're being turned into privileges at a at a crazy rate. Um, do this, check it out. Go over to the website that they've created a landing page for us, www.dontgetpushedaround.com and see for yourself. It works out to like a dollar a day. It's 30 bucks a month. It's very reasonable for this. The, the sorts of documents that you would probably need, you're definitely going to pay thousands of dollars for from a, a traditional attorney. So why not just sign up for this project? Um, get yourself the legal shield service. Get over to your local attorney immediately, knock these documents out, and then just keep them if you need them for anything else. They tell us equal justice under the law. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) Nobody believes that. We all know that the better your attorney, the more the law favors you. So that's why we picked the domain don'tgetpushedaround.com. Listen, tired of people getting uh, pushed around because they don't have access to legal uh, attorneys. So uh, get your medical directives, get your uh, legal documents in in place and go to the website. Don't get pushed around.com. See what you think. Also, Chemical Free Body has been our sponsor for about three years now. We're very appreciative of them because we know that they are selling supplements that actually work as opposed to all the companies out there that make products that probably don't work. It's a scammy business. We all know the vitamin and supplement industry is filled with crooks and criminals, but thank God Tim James is there and his company, Chemical Free Body. They are making the best products out there. He's obsessed with keeping chemicals out. He saved his own life by changing his diet and he thinks he can help you as well. So do this. If you are, if it's 2023 and this is the year that you're finally going to take control of your own health, because let's be honest, you're the only person that can do it. 
Go to chemicalfreebody.com, do a little shopping, see what you think. If you find something that you like, use the promo code MACRO. It'll save you some money uh, on your way out. And anything that you buy over there helps to support the show. So thank you to the crew over there. Well, I'm tell, I'll am tell you right now, I'm excited about this interview because I've been following Captain Dan's work on Twitter for a while. He is, um, well, he is Captain Dan Hanley, United Airlines pilot 20,000 flight hours. This is a man that knows his way around. He is the founder of 911pilots.org. He is coming to us from Pakistan. Captain Dan, it's great to see you. How are you? I'm doing great, Charlie. Uh, and thanks for having me on the program. Well, thanks for being here. Uh, 35 years of flying over, uh, you know, over a career, I would say makes you uniquely qualified to speak about how airplanes work and more importantly, how airplanes don't work. Can you give us a little bit of background of, of, of who you are and how you got into this? And, uh, and, and we'll talk a little bit about the role of airplanes in 9-11. But first, let's, uh, let's talk about you and find out who, who you are and why you are so angry with these people. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, anyhow, you mentioned some of it. I commenced flying over 50 years ago in 1968 at age 19. I'm showing my age 73 and I'm still at it with the 9-11 uh, truth movement. But anyhow, I got my private commercial instrument and multi-engine rating by 1970 and then entered a four-year college. And when I was getting out, in 73, the Vietnam War was still raging, and I had to make service plans or I was going to get drafted. And uh, I had spent all this money learning to fly out of my own pocket. And so I chose naval aviation and entered in 73, got my wings in 74. And over the course of uh, 10 years, I flew the P-3 Orion, which was a four-engine trouble prop that was used to track Soviet submarines during the Cold War. In uh, 78, 1978, United hired me as a pilot, and over the next 25 years, I flew seven different aircraft. So, as you mentioned, all total, I flew a total of uh, 15 different aircraft over 35 years, accruing 20,000 flight hours. So, I've been told by attorneys that that would qualify me as an expert witness, and we're going to be talking about 9-11, so I want to go on record as saying that with that experience, I can unequivocally say without embarrassment or reservation that I could not have flown the 9-11 flight profiles and neither could the alleged Muslim hijackers. So that's the gist of 9-11 pilot whistleblowers. Uh, oh, come on. We all, we all know Hani Hanjur was a, was a spectacular pilot. <laughs> oh, wait, wait till we get into him. But, uh, let me. Let me follow along what we're doing with, as you mentioned, I currently serve as director and international public spokesperson for this grassroots efforts. It's global called 9-11 Pilot Whistleblowers. We got a website at 911pilots.org and our YouTube channel at 911pilots, which is part of the reason I do podcasts because I want people, we want people to get in, read the uh, information we have and see if they don't come to the same conclusion we do, that the hijackers couldn't have flown the airplane. So uh, that is our purpose. The purpose is to show, go ahead. Well, well I was just curious to, to know wh that when you, when you came out, okay, so we have 9-11 happens in 2001. When did you first start speaking out about your concerns with uh, the official story? Okay, I was flying the Boeing 777 out of New York. I was flying with a bunch of scared crew members because I was flying out of Newark and the flight attendants lost friends in United 93 in, in Pennsylvania. And they were, the uh, airline and the uh, FAA were making all these promises that they were going to have cameras in the back of the aircraft, enhanced barrier protection for the cockpit, federal margin, a whole bunch of things they promised that hadn't happened. And flight attendants felt like they were sitting ducks back in the back and said, Dan, say something, do something. Well, as a captain, I felt an obligation to go to the company and say something. And I'll make a long story short. I did that, working my way all the way up to the upper echelons of management. And I was getting nowhere. I'd been stonewalled. So I brought the FAA, the Federal Aviation Administration, into the equation with the reports that I filed. And as soon as I did that, they took me out of schedule. Wouldn't let me bring in my own attorneys. The union wouldn't represent me. They warned me 
this was going to happen. And I had recorded phone calls, witnesses, a correspondence trail a mile long. So I figured if they're going to hammer me, I'll take this to court, whether while I'm still at United or or outside. Well, what happened was we were at an impasse. So they put me on sick lists without me having seen an aeromedical professional, okay? And I was running out of sick time. I was going to go on unpay. So I went to my chief pilot and said, hey, Bob, this is punitive now. I haven't done anything wrong. The file safety reports. And he goes, well, submit to the uh, employee assistance program, and I'll guarantee you pre- protection and ensure your pay is going to come in, and it's endorsed by the FA, the company, and the union, right? So I, I knew this was going to happen because I'd seen it in the past, and union lawyers warned me I was going to. And they wound up sending me for a psyche valve determined that I was bipolar, which I had seen my own mental health professionals in Atlanta saying, here's where I am, here's what they're going to try to do, prove I'm sane, right, which they did. So when they did this, they drove me off the property. They put me on a, they gave me a medical discharge. Okay, so I, it practically ruined me. I destroyed a 27-year marriage, alienated my two kids who blame me for the divorce, Still believe the official story. Think I'm a whacked out conspiracy nut, and they don't talk to me as my biggest loss. And I lost about four million in pay pension stock, so I, I paid a heavy price for speaking out, Charlie. Wow. Yeah, that was going to be my question. Was what did they? I know that they have this this trick they like to do where they send you to the to the psychiatrist, and the minute they do that, then they can make that psychiatrist say whatever they want them to say exactly. about your mental state. And the next thing you know, like, wow, we can't have these unhinged pilots up there in the sky. You know, that's dangerous to everybody, right? So they 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 they, they did they pulled that trick on you, huh? Right. The union warned me they're gonna, if they can't get you professionally or medically, they'll get you psychologically. Okay, it's called a hostile work environment for Psyche Valve. And there was a Delta pilot named Carlene Pettit who just fought her case for six years and won, identical to mine, reporting safety issues, taken out of schedule, <laughs> diagnosed bipolar, something familiar, right. and they, they threw her off the property. So she won her case. So there are, I couldn't find an attorney that would represent me as my problem. So that. I, I look. I, I I'm not. I'm not surprised by this either. I mean, it's horrible and it's completely unfair, and but also not surprising because this right. is a real problem to the empire. Is this 9/11 uh, story? And the it's like a thread. The more you pull on it, you know, the 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 more you you wind up pulling, and and you've got a bigger a big a mess on your hands at some point. I, I, you know, I'd love to be able to say that on the morning of September 11th, from my apartment in Manhattan Beach, California, I had it all figured out, but I didn't. It took a couple of years. And in fact, in my case, it took until we started the drum up to the war in Iraq and they kept saying, well, this is, you know, 9-11. And I was like, what? This doesn't make any sense. This is, they had nothing to do with 9-11. So this seems like maybe you're just using 9-11 to, as the cover to do all kinds of things that you've always wanted to do. And if that's the case, then, then it's important. So now we get to the point where we know 9-11 was, um, I'd say both an inside and outside job. Uh, we have some people inside the administration involved in it. We have some people externally involved in it. And, uh, and and so when did when did this all sort of uh, get your attention? So as a pilot, you see that you 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 clearly have to be in the aftermath of this, watching this, and you see CNN and they're doing these diagrams and they're showing you know graphic representations of a of a United Airlines. Is it? You know, I guess it was a United Airlines. Um, yeah. Um, America 77, the Pentagon one that was doing a 270 degree corkscrew corkscrew loop and then coming in level with the Pentagon and striking it right where they were doing the, all the accounting on missing money. Exactly. At what point did, when did alarm bells start going off for you as far as questions about this official narrative? Well, April, 2003, I believe is when shock and awe occurred. And it had the same impact on me because at that same time, United Airlines announced that we're going to terminate a $10 billion pension fund. And I knew they were, they were in bankruptcy and getting everything they wanted from a mobbed up judge that we later proved. And, uh, 
I knew they were using 9-11 for, for a bunch of issues. And there they I was stonewalled. And that's what sent me in the attack mode. <laughs> and yeah. filing these reports was uh, those, those incidents. But after that, when they announced uh, the uh, inexperience of the pilot, I thought, where did these guys learn to fly these things? Surely they must have flown in a foreign country somewhere and brought up the speed. And then I still question it, especially the Hani Hanjur maneuver at the Pentagon. Okay. So I didn't, that's when I started really not believing that they were telling the truth about the hijackers, which led me to being on your program right now. Yeah. <laughs> Cause that, that's what 9-11 whistleblowers is out to prove. Well, can I, do you, are you, do you know uh, Captain Russ Wittenberg? I do. I talked to him, uh, maybe over a year ago. Uh, and I know what he's out there saying. Yeah. I've got a, uh, I've got a quote from him. This was in the first book. Uh, I'm going to read this to, for, for, um, people. He said, uh, I flew the two actual aircrafts, which were involved in nine 11, the flight number 175 and flight 93, the 757 that allegedly went down in Shanksville and flight 175 is the aircraft that's alleged to have hit the South tower. I don't believe it's possible for, like I said, for a terrorist, a so-called terrorist to train on a Cessna 172, then jump into the cockpit of a 757-767 class cockpit and vertically vertical navigate the aircraft, lateral navigate the aircraft and fly the air, airplane at speeds exceeding its design limit speed by well over 100 knots, make high speed high bank turns exceeding probably pulling five, six, seven G's and the aircraft would literally fall out of the sky. I couldn't do it. And I'm absolutely positive. They couldn't do it. <laughs> Is that your yeah. feeling? Yeah. You're very knowledgeable about nine eleven, And I agree with him a hundred percent. Yeah. That's why I mentioned that what I had flown and I couldn't do it, especially honey hunters maneuvered. So let me, you mentioned the maneuver he supposedly performed and struck the building on its first try, okay? Yeah. What isn't mentioned is this uh, maneuver was replicated in a simulator and flown by highly experienced pilots, another group called 9-11, no, Pilots for 9-11 Truth did it. And almost without exception, they crashed the simulator when they tried to attempt this maneuver. The challenging part is to get an airplane of that size at that speed down to ground level because the Pentagon's only, I think, 71 feet tall. So they had to be down at the ground to hit what they wanted to. Uh, and that's what, that's what was impossible for the guys in the simulator. I think one guy on his 21st try managed to hit the building. So, uh, let me just inject a couple things here. That being one of them that this was replicated, but this is, we go into detail, uh, one month after nine, one month prior to 9-11, Hani Hanjar went to the freeway airport in Maryland and tried to rent a Cessna 172. And he went up with two inf instructors on three flights between them, a girl named Sherry Baxter and a guy named Ben Connor. Okay. And on these flights, he was such a poor, he couldn't handle the airplane. So they went to the chief instructor who I talked to last year, his name Marcel Bernard, and said, uh, don't rent him an airplane. Now, this is a guy they wouldn't rent in the 172 that supposedly flew a 757, but they said, don't rent him the airplane. But there's more to the story. Uh, Hani goes down the road to uh, congressional air charters, another uh, aircraft uh, company that rented airplanes, and supposedly flew with a guy named Eddie Shalev. Okay, Eddie Shalev said he was a good pilot. Ed, the 9-11 uh, final report, not commission, final report, didn't even mention the freeway airport incident. Took Honey uh, Shalev's word for it, and it appeared but an end note. Shalev's name only appeared once, and it wasn't under oath that he made that statement. But it gets even better. Eddie Shalev was an Israeli who served in the Israeli Defense Force and uh, disappeared after this. They closed Congressional Air Charter and no one can find him. They think he might be back in Israel, but not that that means anything. No, no. I was just going to say, when you said Shalev, I was going to say, let me guess, Mossad? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, we could possibly draw that conclusion, but we can't prove it. But uh, right. the whole story stinks. So. Well, the whole story does stink. And one of the things that I... Um, 
you know, in trying to make sense of this. Okay, so you go, okay, we've got a we've got an, a pilot who can't fly. Right. Uh, but we've got a plane that did something, allegedly, a, a plane did something remarkable. Well, well, really, all of them, whether you're hitting the, the... Let me ask you this. How difficult would it be for you to hit the Twin Towers with one okay, with no. a 757? I'm glad you brought that up, okay? Because they were traveling about 500 knots, which you mentioned was excess of their max operating speed at sea level by about 120 to 140 knots, right? So there's a big controversy whether the airplanes would have come apart or not, okay? So those speeds came from the NTSB and FAA, so I question everything the government puts out. But when you look at it, the Twin Towers are only 208 feet wide, okay? The wingspan on a 757-76 is roughly 150 feet. And if you look at the imprint on the building, they hit it dead on. Had they been just a few degrees off heading, they would have missed it. As a matter of fact, Marvin Nelshahi, the guy that flew 175 into the South Tower, you'll notice that he rolls in 10, 12 seconds out, he rolls into this angle of bank. Had he not done that exactly that period, that point in time with that angle of bank, he, someone's computer, he would have missed the entire building by 800 feet. I, I equate it to this. Imagine you had your driver's license for 15 months and could fly, drive the family car reasonably, okay? Climb into a semi-tractor trailer, a huge 18-wheeler, get it up to 500 miles an hour and try to drive it to a parking, a garage without scraping the sides of the truck. That's how accurate they had to be. So it's impossible to be that accurate at that altitude, at that speed, right? It with, just With their experience level, too. With their experience level, okay. Right. So that begs the question, if they weren't flying it, who who was or what was? And I put this in in my first book. This is from John Croft, Flight Global. He said the uninterruptible autopilot would be activated either by pilots, by onboard sensors, or even remotely via radio or satellite links by government agencies like the Central Intelligence Agency if terrorists attempted to gain control of a flight deck. So, the uninterruptible autopilot is an actual thing, correct? Built by Boeing Boeing Honeywell? Right, correct. Well, I'll get back to the purpose of our group. I said what we were doing, but the purpose is to show there were no Muslim hijackers at the controls, but that the aircraft were electronically hijacked and remotely controlled by the system you mentioned, the uninterruptible autopilot system. It takes complete control of the aircraft's autopilot and flight management computers and guides it to its target. And the pilots, once it's engaged, can't disconnect the thing. So you can imagine the horror, depending upon who was at the controls, uh, that this airplane takes off on its own and did did what it wanted to. But uh, I'll get to... uh, remote control uh, uh, history, okay, because it's co- covered in our on our website, uh, and people don't realize if they say, well, this is impossible to remote control a big airplane like that. It goes back to over 75 years ago in 1944, towards the end of World War II. Uh, the Army Air Corps launched Operation Aphrodite in Europe, and what they did was take uh, old B-24 bombers gutted them out the loose lightning weight of the aircraft and loaded it up with 30,000 pounds of Torpex, which is a highly incendiary compound. And pilots were required to make the takeoff. But once they got airborne, they'd bail out of the aircraft. And these things were remotely guided uh, to targets in Europe. Now, that, that was 1944. And we mentioned on our website, Joe Kennedy, JFK's older brother, was actually killed in one of these top secret missions when the airplane blew up before he had a chance to bail out. And we got a short film clip on that. So that far ago, the system was developed. And you jump ahead to 1940, I'm sorry, to, uh, I'm trying to think, 1984, okay? Okay. Had to pause for a moment there. Okay. NASA and the FAA conducted a joint crash test experiment in a remote location, and they took a huge four-engine commercial jet aircraft, a Boeing 720. No passengers or crew on board. They loaded it with crash dummies and, and cameras, and they wanted to test crew and passenger survivability in the event of a, a crash landing. And they remotely took this big airplane off 
flew it around the pattern several times before intentionally crash landing it. And when you jump up to the mid 90s is when we claim, or actually the early 90s is when we claim the uninterruptible autopilot that exists uh, actually was developed and produced. And uh, we've got uh, an audio recording of an interview conducted of an avionics technician named Wayne Anderson on our remote control page. And in this uh, interview in 1986, late 86, early 87, he actually worked on this system. He saw it happen. They were bench testing an autopilot, which means faking an airplane into the air while it was on the ground. And uh, there was a guy in the maintenance office with a laptop and they engaged the autopilot and they couldn't control it. There's four ways of turning it off. The switch, this little button on the yoke or the steering wheel, applying a 70 pound force or pulling the circuit breaker. Well, they pulled every circuit breaker in the airplane and nothing would work because the system has its own power supply. It's backdoored. Okay. And, uh, so the, a woman came to me on Twitter and because we were exchanging, uh, tweets about the uninterrupted autopilot, I won't mention the person's name, but uh, she, she was going by captain so-and-so, and I thought, oh, it's an airline captain. It turned out, no, she had worked for Raytheon and said, look, I got all this proof Raytheon was involved in the development of this thing, and you're right, it was the early 90s, so she was going to hand me all this evidence and chickened out, and I won't get into why she did, but uh, I heard it firsthand from her. And I, I pers- I'm talking too much, but I personally believe. Go ahead, Charlie. No, were you no, gonna say no go ahead. Finish up. Finish your thought. I, I personally believe it was a military civilian black project. I went to the FAA and said, give me all the data you have because they patented this system in 2006 and stated, hey, the would be design purpose of this. I've got the patent on it. The would be design purpose on this thing is to prevent an, uh, a hijack preventing hijackers from coming down during a commercial jet in flight by remotely taking control of it, flying it to one of 108 airports in the world and auto landing the thing. Okay, that's it. But I think they're tricking us saying, hey, it was too, this thing wasn't invented until 2006. No, I'm sorry. And that, that's what we went to the FAA on, which we can get on, get in a little bit later. Yeah. Well, the, to finish well, from John Croft Flight Global, he goes on to say, to make it fully independent, he's talking about this uninterruptible autopilot, the system has its own power supply, independent of the aircraft circuit breakers. The aircraft remains in automatic mode until after the landing when mechanics or government security operatives are called in to disengage the system. So right. this is this is what we're talking about here, that we've got a, a situation where... Um, where the um we've got the opportunity now now i think we we see drones you know we we know that drones are flown uh you know it used to be that you had to maybe you had to be sort of in line of sight to fly them or whatever now we know that they're flying drones in the middle east out of creech air force base in uh vegas so and i know this because i sold houses to the people that were flying them uh when i was uh uh, living in Las Vegas and selling homes there. So I talked to people that, that do this. So I, I know that that was actually happening. So we, we understand the concept of drones exist now in our world. The only question is getting people to understand that the, the mechanics behind that wasn't, it didn't just come on the market in, in 2007 or 2008 when the patents came out. But in fact, they had been, uh, in development and also covertly being used for at least a, a decade and a half before that, I would I would suggest. Right, you can Google Dark Star. Put in Google Dark Star airplane and watch this Wikipedia article point pop up, which was a drone aircraft, and its first flight was in 1996. So, and it says how it could take off and land by itself, fly to its target, do its job, and a ground remote source could take control of it and change its altitude, heading, airspeed, whatever it wanted. So that, that's proof that the attack, because when I first started looking into it, it says, when was drone technology first introduced? And it was like 2004 as a global hawk and predator, Iraq war and all that. And I go, no, no, that can't be possible. And then I stumbled on this dark star and then the Wayne Anderson interview. 
and we've got it there on the website. So if you follow through uh, our website, we cover the airplanes, the cockpit, the hijackers, and we interviewed a group of pilots too. Uh, I actually conducted the interviews and it was very difficult to get guys to come forward. Some of them said it's too long ago. I don't want to talk about it. Others were too afraid because they were still working. Uh, but they're on the website. There's 10 of them. And the reason we stopped there is because, uh, YouTube and other video platforms were taking it down for hate speech. <laughs> I swear. I swear. We've been very clear about it on this show. It's not hate speech. It's just yeah. speech that they hate. That's exactly what it boils down to. Can That's I ask a you a good question? Way to... how, how from a, I just since I've got a, a a pilot with a ton of experience, I'm I I feel like I want to ask pilot related questions that things that I wouldn't know. Is it how how possible is it, or is it even possible as the pilot to turn off the transponders? It's just a matter of flipping a switch, really. Okay, but the system supposedly shuts off the transponder and shuts off radio, and if you look at Malaysia Air 370, the triple seven, Boeing 777 that disappeared, took taking off out of a, a Kuala Lumpur and for Beijing several years ago. It was identified, as a matter of fact, I was on Malaysian TV talking about this. They asked me to come on and refute some expert in London that was saying it was a pilot, co-pilot, a captain that killed, killed everybody. But, uh, uh, if you look at what happened, it veered wildly off course, just like the, uh, 911 aircraft communications were lost and a transponder was shut down. So, uh, that it, I say, I believe the system will shut down those systems. Okay. But I, I can't confirm it. We've got a, if anybody's really interested in Malaysia 370, we've got an articles drop down menu on the website. And there's a 66 page document there that goes into great detail about Malaysia 370 and great detail about the whole evolution of the remote control of jet, of jet aircraft. So it's all there on our website. I think that's pretty fascinating because we, I, I didn't feel like we were getting, I, I never trust the media, but, but I, especially oh. with, with, with that, that flight, everything seemed very fishy about it, but I never could figure out the angle, you know, I, I, I never, I never understood. Well, I know what the angle is in 9-11. I couldn't figure out the angle on the Malaysia air. I didn't know if that was. Well, there's, a, there's an article out there. There are a group of people out there that have speculated that this is what occurred, but the debunkers are out there saying that's garbage. It didn't happen, but I'll, I'll give you what I've read. And I don't know whether it's true because I can't prove it, but there was a group of 20 Chinese and Malaysian scientists on board, of which four of them, you've heard this? Yes. Held a patent on a microchip. Yeah, yeah, and that's he, right. Now, like, I, now yeah. I remember. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the fifth patent holder on the uh, microchip supposedly was Jacob Rothschild. Yeah. And uh, when they all died, disappeared for that airplane, he inherited it. And if you look at him and BlackRock and their association with the Carlyle Group and it having defense applications, so... Uh, that's what I heard, but I can't confirm it. You didn't hear it here. I no, no. I now that you mention it, I did hear it elsewhere as yeah, well. So yeah. I, I always, I'm always. Listen, I'm always open. It doesn't mean I, you know, I try to get as much, get the facts, you know, all the facts before I make a decision. But when I hear patent holders and Rothschilds, I start to get very suspicious. What did you make of the Wesley Clark comment years ago oh. about, about? I mean, that to me. Uh, you know that to me was it feel it felt like we were getting uh, entrance into a, a special club to hear him talk about the seven countries in five years and I go upstairs right. from the department if I get this paper down it says how we're gonna you know and then he comes back a couple week a couple months later and they're bombing and he said you know and they say well it's much worse you know look we've got this we're gonna invade seven countries in five years and you hear that and you go. Oh, that's crazy, right? When you win, yeah. when you know, if you were to, if it were happening in in real time, you would think so, this is never going to happen. Now we have the benefit of hindsight. We look back on that list of countries, and it it didn't wrap up with Iran. I would say not yet, yeah, <laughs> but right. certainly on their on their radar. Did that make you feel like this whole thing was just a little bit too? Uh, 
I don't know, coincidental for you? Absolutely. As a matter of fact, let me just mention something here real quick. Uh, Nine Limb Pilots, Pilot Whistleblowers are, were producing a documentary, and the name of it is 9-11, the advent of the Ninth Crusade, because we believe there were eight major crusades, and this was in part a launch against Muslims worldwide with Islamophobia flourishing. Okay, and we do have that Wesley Clark, the entire uh, film clip in the documentary for that very reason, because uh, the our mantra that there were no Muslim hijackers at the controls of the 9-11 aircraft resonates well with the 1.8 billion Muslims in the world and the 225 million that I'm living amongst here in Pakistan. So uh, yeah. we're, we're trying to lure them in because other than the next of kin, I can't think of a bigger group of people that's been more harmed by the lies of 9-11 than Muslims. I agree. And let's talk about that because look, not for nothing. You didn't come up with this crusade concept on your own. George W. Bush mentioned this is a crusade. He said, got that. and I remember my mom calling me and going, this is, she goes, I know he's a dummy, but the, he, I don't think he knows what he's saying when he's talking about the crusades. I don't think right. he really, and I thought, I said, well, he's a dummy, but I think he's being told this is the plan from people above him. I think the term crusades was not chosen, uh, accidentally. I think it's part of this. And you're right. The most, the, 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 the group of people, obviously, besides the, 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 those connected, the families of those that have been put through this, the Muslim community community has been demonized. And I think it's brilliant what you're doing. The angle that you guys are going after now to come at it from, no, let's not just petition the American government. You know, you're, you know what you're going to get with that. You're going to get lies and obfuscation and all kinds of st- and <laughs> psych ward evaluations and all that stuff. But if you go around the other side and talk to the Muslim community and explain, hey, we know you guys didn't have anything to do with this. We're 100% certain. But but you've been demonized and they, they put this on you um, by the media, who I think is the most dangerous institution in the world. The, the, the media has demonized this entire group. And for you to get traction by waking them up, I think is genius. Can you talk a little bit about what your plan is with this. And you mentioned you're you're in Pakistan, which is obviously a Muslim country. So um, you would know, I'm curious to know what your plan is and what you hope the reaction will be from um, the Muslim world. Okay, I got to back off to uh, July 2020 when I called the FBI in Washington and said, look, I want to report a crime. And uh, (laughs) it was about the uninterrupted autopilot and the person on the other end of the phone was very silent. And I knew from the get-go that I'd be stonewalled. But what we did was the FBI said no. So I waited a month, called them back, and they were adamant. And we told you, no, we'll call you if we want anything. So we went to TSA, nothing. Finally, we went to the FAA and got my foot in the door. And initially, they were very receptive till they realized what I was saying. And then they clammed up. So we went through a process of writing the FAA administrator, the department, the secretary of transportation, even including the director of national intelligence, the attorney general, the president, you name it. We got, and we warned Biden on our last letter that, look, if you don't go, if the American government doesn't want to involve themselves in this, we'll go to foreign countries that would be very interested, Muslim countries. So we said it in a letter to him. And in uh, March of last year, I got a chance to brief the, uh, Inter services intelligence here in Pakistan, so they they so that they would know what we were doing, but they couldn't really go move forward, and I won't get into why they couldn't or wouldn't do that. But uh, because we were stonewalled for 28 months, the last I for 28 months I tried to find a point of contact. All I wanted was a phone number, or email address to somebody in the FA, and they wouldn't give it to me. But when we finally backed them up against the wall with this Connor. Baxter, uh, the thing Mark Gaffney reported in an article in 2009, okay, about him failing to check right. And it turned out two of those instructors work for the FAA as aviation safety inspectors now, which is uh-huh. kind of suspicious, maybe. And I talked, 
I talked to uh, Marcel Bernard in December last year. I managed to track him down to Washington, okay? And he was a chief instructor that refused to rent the airplane to him. And I left him voicemail a couple times such that when I finally got a hold of him, he says, who is this? I said, Dan Hanley. He goes, I have nothing to say to you. <laughs> and then he proceeded for six minutes to chew me out, opening something that was 20 years old. He said, do you know who's involved with this? I go, no, it wasn't George Bush. It was the most powerful, ruthless, wealthy individuals and organizations in the world that was involved. He goes, that's exactly right. Why don't you drop it? And I go, no, I'm not going to. It hasn't been investigated. But anyhow, I'm getting off topic here. Because we haven't gotten anywhere with the U.S. government, I wrote to the prime minister of Pakistan, Imran Khan, and his uh, uh, foreign minister, okay? And I was trying to set up an appointment with them when the regime change took place here in April, and that fell apart. But uh, what we've gone on and done, let me mention three organizations, okay? The Organization of Islamic Cooperation is headquartered in Riyadh, uh, Saudi Arabia, okay? It's the UN of the Muslim world. It's the largest such organization after the United Nations, okay? And it claims to be the voice of Muslim worldwide. It's comprised of 57 Muslim countries, okay? And the representatives to the organization are the foreign ministers from each of those countries. So what we've done is write to the Secretary Treasurer, right, the Secretary General of the OIC, saying, hey, look, we've got all this information out here. It's public knowledge. Why don't you establish an international Islamic commission for 9-11 inquiry, a 9-11, the Muslim 9-11 commission, right? Yes. We haven't heard anything bad, but what we followed on doing was write all these foreign ministers said, hey, climb on board. They said, what, what excuse do they have, given that we can produce this evidence to them for not going forward? We, you would think they would want to jump on it. But uh, myself and a number of other people are planning on traveling to Riyadh, talking to them. And then the other two organizations is the European Muslim League, which is the largest organization in Europe. And then finally, uh, a Muslim World League, which is uh, headquartered in Mecca. So we're going to these big organizations saying, hey, we've got all this information. You want it? Do you want to establish commission? If not, why not? So we've got addresses and email addresses on their secretary generals, and we're doing a full court press. But yep. go ahead, Charlie. Well, now might be the time to do it. Because, you know, that relationship between the Saudis and the Bush family obviously was very tight. We, we, we know all about that. Uh, the, whether it be H.W. Bush and his ties to the royal family, Bandar Bush, hell, they even they practically adopted one of the, 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 the Saudis. But that, it feels like that relationship has changed recently with MBS in there and not necessarily being a huge fan of Joe Biden. It looks like there's some talk about a, potentially a petro yuan situation as opposed to a petrodollar. So the relationship between the Saudis and America seems like it is as on as uh, thin ice as it's ever been. Normally, I would say going to Saudi Arabia with information about the 9-11 might not be the, the most effective course because, of course, yeah. they would have they were, you know, involved in, in understanding this. But but given the fact that there is a power struggle happening inside the kingdom and a relationship pivot possibly to china this and for all you for all we know they could be looking for a good reason to pivot away from america and this could be the reason that they need to say look how can we continue a relationship with these maniacs in america when they when they set us up and blamed us for for the things that they and Israel were doing themselves, right? Is this not maybe good timing on your part? Exactly. The other, the other thing we did, Charlie, uh, coincidentally, at, while this was occurring with the letter writing, I captured a two-minute film clip, Sergey Lavrov, you know who he is, I do. In, in Washington, okay, held a meeting with, guess who? The Secretary General of the OIC and the whole contingent in Moscow and said, hey, we're good buddies. We love the Muslim nations, okay? And there's this little skirmish going on in the Ukraine. 
and everybody hates Putin. So we wrote a joint letter to Sergei Lavrov and the Secretary uh, General of the OIC saying, why don't you both climb on board? I, we, we didn't mention the political situation, but they can read that between the lines. Why don't you establish this International Islamic Commission for 9-11 Inquiry? So if I could, Charlie, I don't know how much time we have. but uh, You've got as much time as you need. Okay, let me backtrack and talk about the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry. Let's do it. And how, how we're going to tie in with them, okay? People probably never heard of them, but a group of seven attorneys several years ago got together with the biggest 9-11 whistleblowers in the world and organizations in the world, and they created this Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry. And what they did was compile 57 evidence packages that with inputs from, and I can mention them here in a minute, uh, from these whistleblower groups and submitted it to a U.S. attorney in New York who was compelled, impelled to convene a grand jury investigation. There was no movement on it. So the Lawyers Committee started up the legal channel, filing suit after suit, trying to force the uh, Justice Department to conduct this investigation. It wound up going all the way to the Supreme Court two weeks ago, and the Supreme Court refused to hear their allegation that World Trade Center Building 1, 3, and 7 were brought down by controlled demolition and not by jet aircraft impact damages of the fuel fires that ensued. And they've got a wealth of evidence. So what I've got a conference call with the lawyers the week after next, and we're going to put our heads together, and I'm going to propose to them that we establish an umbrella group that consider, consists of pilots, the lawyers committee, and architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth, which is comprised of 3,600 architects and engineers saying it's structurally impossible to bring down the World Trade Center just based on the design of it, and approach the Muslim world with all this information. Right. So we're, we're trying to compile all the information we can to dump on these Muslim organizations saying, it's all here, it's your choice. So I thought a catchy name for this umbrella organization would be 9-11 Truth Coalition of the Willing. going <laughs> <laughs> to drop some democracy on their ass from 35,000 feet, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's fantastic. You know, it's funny since you mentioned architects and engineers for 9/11 Truth, and I and I realized that over the last two years uh, they've split from from Richard Gage. But um, right. I, you know, in my first book, I wrote a. a there's a chapter in there called Architects and Engineers for 9/11 Truth, right? And so I put this book out in 2017. In 2020. 20 yeah maybe yeah 2020 2019 i forget when it was i get invited to a wedding uh clear across the country state of washington right i go i go all by myself my wife couldn't make it i go to this wedding i don't know anybody um except the the people that are getting married it's a very nice ceremony you go you know the ceremony ends you go into the to, to the place where dinner is and you you look around and where are you getting seated and i grab my seat and seated next to me is richard gage yeah. And I go, you're in my book. And he goes, really? I said, no, I don't think you understand. I, my, I have a chapter. In it. So poor Richard, I talked his ear off for two hours during that dinner and he was, couldn't have been nicer. And he and I had become friends. And I said, you should speak in Mexico at an Arcapulco, this large anarchist convention. He says, well, make that happen. You know, you, you wrote a book with a guy that runs it. So why don't you make that? Happen? And I did make that happen. Well, I mean, Richard made that happen, but I made the connections. And then I see him in Mexico and he's speaking to 3000 anarchists and getting a standing ovation. And I'm And so we, so the universe works in mysterious ways to write a book and then get seated next to the guy that you put in your book was, was almost too much for me. And, and, and I had yeah. the ability to talk to him about, I said, well, so what are you guys doing? Like, tell me where things are. And that's when he said, well, listen, we've, there's this project that we've been working at the university of Fairbanks, Alaska, that is going, that is proving, you know, a, a, 
model simulation, computer modeling, that's going to show that, that it was mathematically and engineering from an engineering standpoint, impossible for building seven to come down with, with fires. So is that the sort of information that you would be packaging up for the uh, lawyers committee for nine 11 inquiry? Exactly. Okay. All of them. I know William Rodriguez, if you know who he is. Yep. So architects and engineers, professor Halsey and his group that created that Fairbanks report, uh, Firemen, anyone. That's why we would love to go to the lawyers committee because they've got these 57 evidence packages that ties all these whistleblowers on the controlled demolition side of uh, the uh, argument or the attack. Okay. With us, the pilots who are talking about the inexperienced pilots not being able to fly the aircraft. So if we could get the architects and engineers and the lawyers and the pilots on the same page, we think it would be dynamite. And if nothing else, it's going to put these Muslim organizations on the spot if it's publicized. So yeah. the biggest thing, Charlie, and you know this, is the mainstream media. Yes. And people don't realize that in 1983, there were 50 independent news media outlets. And today, there's only six that controls 96% of the news you read, see, or hear. And it coincidentally, in 1983, is when Israel launched their Hispara project, which uh, wanted to inject the is Israel into the equation and cast a favorable light on the nation state of Israel. And if you look at who has infiltrated these six media conglomerates, uh, it's yeah. heavily influenced by Israel. It's and yeah. that's what's controlling the minds of not just America, the world is yeah. this, this global, global, I mean, this media complicity with government worldwide to make everybody believe that Vladimir Putin's a bad guy, et cetera. I agree. And so let's escape from mere generalizations in this one, because I know I've watched, I've, I've heard you speak about this. I've read your, your work. I know what you're how you feel about this, it lines up exactly with the way I feel about this. Let's just talk about who was really involved in this, because when we talk about, uh, and this is, of, of course, the unpopular opinion that will will get you thrown off of the media, <laughs> the major media, but um, we have a, we have a, um, we have this the desire to want to look everywhere else in the world except right in front of us for who might be responsible for something like this let me just ask you who do you think was responsible for 9-11 well i get so many people that george bush he planned this whole thing but it makes me chuckle because i my worldview is that okay i personally believe that the most ruthless wealthy powerful people and organizations in the world were responsible for calling the 9-11 hit. And I believe it was planned and executed by Zionist members of Israel, the United States, the UK, and others. Through collusion with the Washington, D.C., uh, the city of London, and even the Vatican, Jesuits in the Vatican, who also had a very, through the Black Pope, have a very large stranglehold on a lot of things. So I believe... And when people say, well, why? Well, people don't even know what the Greater Israel Project is, also known as the Oded Yenin Plan, okay? Yeah. And Israel claims all land from the Euphrates to the Nile is a biblical prophesied promised land, and they've believed this for decades, okay? And this Oded Yenin Plan thinks, seeks to establish that, and if you superimpose a map of greater Israel over the Middle East, it might start to make sense why what happened post 9-11, okay? And if you go from the United States point of view, someone reaped the benefit of a $6.2 trillion expenditure on wars, and that would be the military-industrial complex, which includes banks, defense contractors, etc. So I believe, and then if you go to the city of London, and if you study the history of Israel and read about the Balfour Agreement and the uh, Rothschild family involvement there, uh, 
I believe those uh, entities are responsible for the whole thing. And as a result, millions of Muslims have been slaughtered, maimed, or displaced in the Middle East, South Asia. Islam's been smeared, like you said, and Muslims have been persecuted for a crime that they didn't commit. So having lived the last 13 years in Pakistan through the war and terror and seeing horrors like the Army Public School Peshawar attack where 144 school children were slaughtered by the Taliban really, really opened my eyes. I mean, I started... I started a group called Pakistan's for 9-11 Truth that didn't take off, but I want I want to scream to Islam, I mean Pakistani Muslim. You suffered the loss of seventy thousand lives to the tune of one hundred twenty billion dollars over some fake, some lie, some lie. But I can't. Hopefully, uh, if I don't get whacked, hopefully we'll be able to move forward with. Uh, the plan we have. Well, look, I'm I'm in agreement with you, and I think a lot of times when people hear the the term Zionism or Zionist, yeah. they go, "Oh, that's Jewish people," and it's like, no. I, I've got Joe Biden on the record uh, in one of the books saying, "You know, you don't have to be Jewish to be Zionist." I'm a proud Zionist, and I I stand with them. It is a an ideology. It's less a religion. It's not a. It's exactly. not a. It's like a Democrat, Republican. It's do you know? Are you? It's a political ideology. A political ideology. It gets. Right. It gets sort of um, you know blurred because it's because if they can make it seem like you're uh, denigrating a religion, uh, then then it's easier to say, oh, you have to condemn these people for talking about this insanity. Nobody's condemning Jewish people. We're not saying that the jews did it or anything like that it's zionism and that is um that was you you don't have as as biden said you don't have to be jewish to be a zionist and in fact the project for a new american century was filled with both um dual israeli u.s citizens that were zionists and straight americans that were zionists and there it's a it's it was a it's a political ideology to remake the middle east in a way that benefits the zionists that are in control and it's so it, whenever you start talking about that you kind of have to do the disclaimers and the song and dance and you say i'm not talking about this group of people but you so you have to sort of explain this is how they did this is how they hide it they use the shield of oh you're criticizing jewish people which we're not but they use right. that as a shield to deflect legitimate criticism from zionist mentality which is very real and very out in the open and it's not they're not de- denying this but it's the 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 concept of using the united states to do the dirty work for the zionists is disgusting and that is i think where I'm hoping that you'll get a lot of traction with this in the uh, Muslim world because, you know, look, I think th- I think a lot of people in the Muslim world, just like a lot of people in in the in the Western world, still believe the official story. They just have never had a a, a, a competing opinion about it. It's never it's almost never been it's never been allowed in Western media. I should I should rephrase that because I, I can't speak for how it's being framed in the Muslim media world. But but um but I'm sure that there's a large segment of the population that still believe the the official story. And and it's very important for us to reach them and to to speak to them. For whatever reason, this show is like big in the muddle in the Middle East. And and I'll and I'm grateful and I'll take it. I have no idea why that is. So if you're listening to this in the Middle East, I think it's important for you to recognize, look, you were used as as the Patsies. You were Oswald in this scenario. You know what I mean? You right. were the and they and they're trying to Jack Ruby you. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So, so exactly. where, do we, where do we go from here? You've got. We'll wrap it up with this because we got a couple. Okay. Lawyers Committee for nine eleven inquiry, which is which is a great angle. We've got you uh, working with a Muslim, basically essentially a Muslim world tribunal, a nine eleven tribunal. Um, well, we're trying it. We're trying this. It hasn't realized trying yet. Yeah. I think it's. I think it's worth trying. I think that's a, a great angle. What? What? What would be? So, if if people are listening or watching this and they and they have uh, questions or they want to support or they have something to contribute, what is the best way for people to get involved with this? Okay. Well, 
I hesitate to mention this, but I will. Uh, we, we put out flyers. Uh, we try, if you say you've got a big audience in the Middle East and South Asia, if any of you out there listening have podcasts or would like to get me on TV, I, I've did, told Mitch I did the two Malaysia and I did one in Casablanca and then the one here. Uh, but just trying to, I, I was just sending a message to a uh, producer on Press TV who was going to have me on this past September 11th and said, please keep in touch. We'll get in touch with you. So Press TV's in, in Tehran and it goes out across the Middle East. And if I could just get myself, the lawyers committee and architects and engineers on that program to say what we're doing and why we're doing it, they can put two and two together with each of the organizations and realize what we're saying and that it would exonerate Muslim from any wrongdoing on 9-11, okay? It would stop Islam from being trampled or their holy prophet being denigrated or Quran burnings and all the other things that have happened the last 20 years. So it's an uphill battle, but there are 1.8 billion of them. And if you could get, if you could get 1%, I believe that's one, 1.8 million. That's a lot of people that you'd have in your corner. But uh, Mick Harrison, the chief litigator for the Lawyers Committee, was both on uh, uh, George Galloway's program and Jason Goodman's program in New York City. And they were talking about what they want to do. And they're all lawyers and it's costing them money and they're paying out of their own pocket. And each of each of them have donate buttons on their website. so. They need money, and we've got. I I fought the guys that created our websites, and we can't put a donate button on it because they'll make like we're a bunch of money grubbers trying to capitalize on 9/11, and they went dead it anyhow. So we collected <laughs> a whopping fifteen hundred dollars over three years. So for us to be able to travel to Europe, or Riyadh, or Mecca, or any of these places, uh, I'll mention this in closing. I made con. I have friends over in Karachi, which is one of the biggest cities in the world. It's also the headquarters for Pakistan International Airlines. And these two guys are ex-Pakistan Air Force Wing Commanders, MPIA 747 captains. And I said, hey, can you get a group of pilots together? And my intent on this coming weekend is to go fly over to Karachi and present them with a PowerPoint presentation we've created that goes over the uninterrupted autopilot which pilots will get. And we're handing out these flyers saying, hey, you guys travel all over the place. You interface with other pilots. What we're trying to do is capture the pilot group globally because there's 300,000 pilots and they don't know about There hasn't been a pilot I've contacted yet that was familiar with the uninterruptible autopilot. Wow. And they'll say, no, there isn't. You got to be kidding me. And you go, no. And when you explain, when they read the website and explain to them, they say that, wow. So uh, that's a, that's our game plan, and we're sticking to it. Most pilots are kind of technical guys anyway, you know? Or, right. So you would think that they would be interested in knowing about that gadget that's installed in their plane that they're flying that they don't know is there, and you're doing right. all sorts of, of flight checks and things like that, to know that this somebody has the ability to log in and, uh, and protect... Even if it's a good guy, <laughs> you'd still yeah, know exactly. that, that exactly. they have that ability. And the fact that that, that little, um, that, that detail has been hidden from pilots should, I think would, should make people a little bit suspicious. But, uh, uh, let's wrap up with this. Where's the best place for people to find you, to find your work and to, uh, and, and to share the information that you're putting out? Okay. Folks, write this down. 911pilots.org. We have a join us page. Uh, tab at the top of the page. All we need is your name and email address, and we'll put you on our mailing list and keep you apprised of what's going on. But we also have, uh, once we get your email address, we can contact you because there's a little block down that says if you're a pilot, indicate what type of airplanes you're flying so we can interview them, okay? But the other thing is we've got a contact us on there, which is an email, which puts you right in contact with me. So Sometimes we get a lot of emails and it's hard to keep up with, but that would be the best way to contact us directly. Well, the, 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 the bad news is that it's been 20 years since 9-11. The good news is 
with that distance and time, people will let their guards down. Some people are no longer required to keep their mouths shut to keep their job uh, intact. So we are at a place where it is worthwhile to shake those trees a little bit and see if we can get some whistleblowers or some some experts or somebody that that has information about this to come come forward now after after 22 years. I mean, it's it's the most important event of my lifetime. And I think it's important for people to never forget what happened on 9-11. And more importantly, never forget what was done in the name of 9-11 all over the world to millions of innocent people. That's Captain Dan Hanley, everybody. He's the best. Please check out his work. Support him where you can. If you like this episode, take the additional step right now of sharing it with your friends and family. You can connect with me at the website, theoctopusofglobalcontrol.com. Thanks, everybody. 